0: On The Empire Podcast this week, we tackle the week's big releases, including The Imposter*, The Watch and The Three Stooges. We're also joined in the pod booth by three cracking guests, Adam Buxton, The Imposter* Director, Bart Layton, and Shadow Dancer Director, James Marsh. And we say a very sad farewell to the late, great Tony Scott. Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to The Empire Podcast, the weekly movie podcast whose last girlfriend was so fat, her high school photograph was an aerial shot. I'm joined this week, as ever... By a woman who attacks her job with a certain exuberance, it's Helen O'Hara. Hello. How are you?
1: Um, okay, I'm very exuberant this morning.
0: Good, excellent. Uh, glad to hear it. Uh, next comes a man who may or may not be the Antichrist. Tell the angels in heaven you've never seen evil so singularly personified as you did in the face of Phil DeSemlian. How are you, <laughs>
2: gotta be honest after last week's competition fiasco I'm in a bendetta kind of a mood <laughs> what is that what is
0: what is not popcorn-y about Awesome Wells The Trial I, I, I don't know where to begin quite frankly do we get a lot of entries um, there, there, there were entries several <laughs> there, were, there were entries uh, next up is a man whose ego is writing checks his body can cash even at cash converters. but what the hell I can be his wingman anytime it's, it's Ali plan.
3: may I just say I'm flattered that you chose Top Gun for me that makes me
0: the best I think right let me see. Last Boy Scout for Helen. True Romance for Phil. Top Gun for you. Well, when you say win. it like that. And I, I happen win. to know
1: that Last Boy Scout is his favourite, so.
0: Oh, that's true. Uh oh. <gasps> uh oh. Bridging the Divine, Helen. Bridging yes, the Yes, that's it.
1: Cross community uh, relations.
0: Absolutely. Uh, as you can tell. From that salvo of uh, quotes, Tony Scott is on our minds this week. The brilliant British director of a whole slew of action classics, including, as you've just heard, Top Gun, True Romance, The Last Boy Scout, Man on Fire, and Crimson Tide, Enemy of the State, (laughs) Revenge, etc., etc. He died this week uh, after jumping from a bridge. He was 68. Now we're not going to sit here and speculate about what may have driven Tony to such desperate measures. Instead, we're going to sit here and pay tribute to him for the loss to the film industry, both here and in the U.S. Was deeply profound. Oh, and uh, were you a Tony Scott fan?
1: I was, actually. He's one of those directors that people don't necessarily think they're fans of and then you start listing his films and go, well, yeah, of course I like that one, and yeah, I absolutely like that one, and yeah, that one's really great fun. I think he, you know, he always kind of pushed the boundaries in a weird way, and I don't think people thought of him that way necessarily, but what's really interesting is even if you say yes he was an action director which is sometimes a rather dismissive term what's really interesting is how completely different from one another all of these action films are they don't feel even remotely similar for the most part, they feel, mm. each one feels like it's own completely separate sort of genre of the genre and I think, I think that's extraordinary really
2: What's your favourite Tony Scott film? Mine is... It's funny because I've been reading a lot of tributes this week and a lot of people are listing their sort of top five Tony Scott films and this one hasn't really featured as much as I thought it would. But Enemy of the State, I love Enemy of the State. I can go back to that and watch it over and over again. I think what's great about it is it's kind of... There's so many films you watch nowadays that, that seem to be trying to do Enemy of the State. Think of something like Safe House, Ridley Scott... Made a espionage thriller that has elements of it as well, um, and look at surveillance culture in an interesting way. And none of them get close. And this is just a great, fun. You know, if Michael Bay were a really terrific filmmaker, this would be the sort of film <laughs> he'd be making. And I don't you mean
0: say that. He's not. Uh,
2: uh, <clears throat> I just, I absolutely love this film. And you know, it draws a, a bee between where we're at now and the and the seventies conspiracy thrillers. It's a film that pays homage to Francis Ford Coppola's *The Conversation*. And it, you know, it just punches those kind of films in in the face and really just <laughs> ramps them up
0: in a mm. in a in a sort of adrenal fashion. And I absolutely adore it. Yeah, I love the fact that Amy states, for a while at least, *Toys* the idea that it might be a semi sequel to *Cobblers*. The conversation. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean
2: punches in the face in a negative way. I mean just, you know, like you say, it's it's kind of a film that that's come from that place and taken it somewhere else. And I think Tony Scott did that with the action genre
0: in a profound way. Ali, what's your favourite? Scott uh, Tony Scott film
2: my favourite Tony Scott film without a doubt is True
3: Romance um, I know that Last Boy Scout is a very very close second but um, there's something about I mean as soon as you put the DVD in and the Hans Zimmer interpretation of the Badlands theme starts ricocheting around your lounge I'm I am in I'm so happy that song that theme that tune is in my head you know, more than I care to say and the scene of scenes for me is the eggplant scene <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is extraordinary I, I, again we've all been reading lots of um, discussions of Tony and what made him so good and in that scene it's noticeable that he didn't do that much at all it was the, the two of them having at it. It, it there was no explosions or kind of additions or sparkly glitter on anything it was just them delivering Tarantino's words and it is extraordinary viewing uh, that's a YouTube rewatch that I went straight to after I heard the news
0: them of course being Chris Walken and Dennis Hopper that's right indeed um, Interesting, I read an interview with Tony Scott uh, where he said that the humour wasn't on the page mm. in that scene that they brought it out in rehearsal so he just went do it like that and that's perfect thank you very much indeed <laughs> uh, that movie
3: Off you go. also has obviously Brad Pitts as one of my yeah. favourite movie yeah. stoners of course he never moves from his seat which I, I you notice maybe on the second you go no he hasn't moved at all. And obviously, uh, James L. Gandolfini, one of the best goons you're going to get. I mean, oh, he's yeah. a, a truly horrific man. And that <laughs> is, scene in the uh, hotel room is mm. nightmare-inducing yeah. uh, in the best possible way.
0: One of the great things I think is a, a good compliment to play to Tony Scott is if you look at his casts. And he had this little repertory company, didn't he? And he obviously worked with Denzel Washington five times. But he also, Gandolfini pops up three times. He's also in Crimson Tide and in The Taken of Pelham 1, two, three, and he worked with Christopher Walken a number of times and it's just Gene Hackman Gene Hackman yeah indeed absolutely yeah. so it's, it's interesting to see all these people come back clearly mm. he was fun to work for mm. and fun to work with
1: and the other thing is it's interesting the, the people who are coming back because you know Denzel Washington has always struck me as a man who does not suffer fools does not sort of you know like faffing about and waiting he wants to go in do a really good job and get it done and I think that's why he and Scott clearly kind of you know synced so well and were so simpatico
0: yeah he was great in scenarios in which kind of ordinary men rose to extraordinary mm. circumstances. And uh, interesting, if you watch all of the Denzel Washington Tony Scott films, so each of those characters is very, very different. I mean, yes, Deja Vu isn't the greatest film in the world, but Crimson Tide, Man on Fire, you yeah, know, I, I really soft spot. I know people might not like it, but I really did like the taking of Pelamonte Three. It's a, it's a, it's a film on second viewing is really fun once you get into its rhythms. It's a yeah, character yeah. thing. It's a character mm. thing okay. more than, okay. <laughs> okay. more than maybe Wi-Fi on the Underground, uh, but. <laughs> Helen, what's your favourite? Uh...
1: Um, I, I do love uh, True Romance, I'll be honest. I think that's that's probably my favourite. But the one I've seen most often is, is probably Top Gun. I'm not necessarily proud of that, but it is the case. Um, it's just, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of really good fun just through its sheer familiarity. You know, the fact that so many of those lines and those moments have become touchstones in sort of 20 years since... That it's it's very hard to to feel anything, mm. but you know, kind of love for it, it really.
3: It also brought us uh, hotshots,
2: which I can't help but love. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say he was really ahead of the curve with beach volleyball. <laughs> 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 so this summer, it really yeah, it happened. Yeah. Yeah, he was out there, out there. He was, on he was,
1: yeah, absolutely. And he was, was forging away. I, I love the story about the um, the admiral who was advising them on set, and he was he kept trying to sort of rein in the sort of you know. Uh, Brookheimer kind of excesses of the script and you know there's that scene where they're having the briefing in the aircraft hangar mm-hmm. which of course would be completely insane because you know you wouldn't hear anything for the wind the acoustics would be dreadful it's just the worst place to have a class and apparently another Navy Admiral came past and, and had a little chat to their uh, technical advisor on set and said you know how's it going and he, and he just kind of shook his head and said I'm trying to stop them turning it into a musical <laughs> <laughs> but it looked amazingly yeah. cool you've got to give them well that.
2: everyone always said about it that it was the, the most expensive recruitment video for the US yeah. Navy yeah. ever made mm-hmm. I, I would love to get hold of some people that joined the US <laughs> <you> <laughs> naval, know, aviators. naval aviators on the basis of having seen Top Gun and just yeah. find out if it lived up to expectations yeah. I can imagine there's a lot less high-fiving
0: singing Probably less Beach singing. Volleyball. Yeah, not exactly as advertised. No, perhaps not. I quite. wonder if anyone joined the uh, the navy on the basis of Crimson Tide. I was thinking just that. That would be a weird thing to do, because that's <laughs> a, that's that's a kind of a weirder film in mm. terms of its stance in the military.
1: Apparently oh, they, weren't, they weren't given any cooperation at all on that one, were they? Because, yeah. you know, basically, you know, for, for Top Gun, they rolled out the red carpet. For Crimson Tide, they rolled it back up and hid it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no red carpet here for you, I'm afraid. I wonder if anyone joined the Boy Scouts on the, <laughs> the last Boy Scout. Um, or the Fire Brigade on Man of Fire. No, stop it, stop it. Let's um, talk about favourite uh, moments because people have been writing in on Twitter, they've been asking, mm. is our favourite Tony Scott moments, favourite Tony Scott characters, so... What's yours? Well, I'm such a last Boy Scout fanboy.
1: No, um, you are?
0: Yeah, it has to be the moment in Last Boy Scout, They Touch Me Again I'll Kill You moment in Last Boy Scout. It's yeah. just yeah. beautifully iconic. Yeah. Uh, if you don't know it, it's when uh, Bruce Willis uh, asks Kim uh, Coates for a cigarette, and it doesn't end well for Kim Coates. <laughs> for, for, yeah, for yeah. Or indeed for cigarettes. Um, <laughs> I was
2: going to say from the Last Boy Scout, that one, but also the opening sequence of Last Boy Scout, which is...
0: Intense. What the the, the,
2: the running? Game. Yeah, the running back.
0: Well, that, that leads to one of the one of the great credit sequences, I think, which is the uh, the Bill Medley song "Friday Night's a Great Night for Football," which is uh, my jam. On this is my jam this week, uh, and is absolutely fantastic. And it's like this two minute MOR rock song with Bill Medley from the Righteous Brothers singing about how great football <laughs> is. And I just think it's really ballsy to to open up this Bruce Willis wisecracking action thriller with <laughs> with the song. Um, and it's really really cool, really cheesy. Going back
3: to the, uh, that scene, um, I'll kill you, scene. Kim Coates, I mean, I, he's one of my 27%ers. He's extraordinary actor. Yeah. If people watch um, Sons of Anarchy, when I realised he was in that show, I just went, yes, I'm watching this. That,
0: that scene, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, aside from the true romance one I've already brought up. And Kim if- Coates is fantastic. I almost said Kim Quates because I'm a Liverpool fan and I'm just influenced now by Sebastian <laughs> Quates, but it is Kim Coates. Um, he he dies really well in Last Boy Scout spoiler, and uh, he also dies really well in Kevin Costner's Open Range. Have any, anyone seen that?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, there's a moment where there's a they're they're about to have a big face off Costner and Duval and Michael Gambon and his bad guys and his his henchman is Kim Coates, and uh, you think it's going to descend into this sort of. Western shootout Costa just walks up to Kim Coates and shoots him in the head that's how, that's how it all starts off it's absolutely brilliant if you haven't seen Open Range do go and check it out it's very very good um, oh and uh, Kim Coates is also uh, best mates with believe it or not William Fichtner I could just I, I just would love to hang out with those guys just to be a fly on the wall that's mm. like a 54% <laughs> in that room right there yeah. amazing what what they be plotting?
1: What wouldn't they be plotting <laughs> Terrifying.
0: So, uh, favourite moment, uh, Helen.
1: I don't know. I've just been trying to think. Actually, it's all probably of all of them. Yeah, it's probably something involving Goose and Top Gun. Let's be honest. <laughs> who, who doesn't love Goose?
0: I know the sex
3: scene from Top Gun. Let's just say.
1: Oh no, with the with the with the blue light <laughs> and the curtains. No, I think it would probably be uh, Goose and Meg Ryan. Take me to bed, or lose me forever.
2: The sex scene in Hot Shots, <laughs> But <better than>, uh, <laughs> with a uh, fried, fried, fried egg on her belly. Yeah, yeah, and the bacon.
3: Uh, Ali? Uh, Well, you know, I've already kind of covered it, but I would also point out the um, gun, the hidden gun in Last Boy Scout. When I first saw that, I spat whatever I was drinking out of my mouth. It's just, it's such an about turn, like a 90 degree turn in that scene. Oh, in the
0: puppet? The guy's hidden in the puppet. Uh, there's the bum-bomb in Man and Fire, that's always... Well, <laughs> that's, who doesn't love that? Who doesn't love a bum-bomb every now and again? And yeah, it's just, there's just tons of good stuff. I mean, Crimson Tide, the bit where Denzel Washington takes the control yeah. of the boat by Gene Hackman. are yeah. basically two fantastic actors just yelling at each other. <laughs> uh, it's just it's just great.
1: There should be more scenes like that, actually. Yeah. always You know, big manly men just fighting Yelling at out. each other, yeah. yeah.
0: basically. Well, Crimson Tide's a film I watched, actually, uh, the night his, his death was uh, announced. I went out to see I hadn't seen it since it came out in the cinemas. It's a fantastic film, mm. absolutely fantastic film. It could be, a, it could be a stage play. You know, there's moments yes. where the with submarines play cat and mouse with each other, but that's not. It's not really about that. It's about. It's just. It's probably his best acted film,
1: I would say. What? Why don't they do more submarine movies on stage? Mm.
3: I do wonder
0: that. Yes. People will get wet.
1: I guess that's yeah, it. You could do it at the London Aquarium. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love also. Negative ghostwriter Rider pattern is full. <laughs> I can't get enough of that. The guy's always got his coffee just at that moment,
1: and he's also filled it up too high. Well, Come they on. all they actually make. They, get a someone latte someone a hands him that coffee at that moment. I know it's he's like almost like they got, know they're coming. Oh, no, yeah, just wait he's clearly got this this raft of re- really disloyal subordinates who keep handing him coffee. It's <laughs> likely to go horribly wrong.
0: Unbelievable. Uh, and very very quickly, then your favourite Tony Scott character, Ali. Oh, you're, you're, you're a cruel
3: man. That was that was well sprung. Um, hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: I'm just going to fill the space by saying Viper. <laughs> <laughs> We're giving, I'm buying you some time.
1: I'm actually going with Brad Pitt Stoner, or possibly Gary Oldman's Rasta.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah
1: that was pretty Drexel, awesome.
3: Drexel, yeah. yeah, Drexel. That's a very good shout. I was talking about that just yesterday. He's in that movie for about three minutes and he's, you know, many people's favourite bit. Yeah, I love you don't need Hammond any more than Hammond
2: in anything but Enemy of the State.
0: Uh His, very character.
2: great in that, yeah. and I love the the link back to uh, the conversation and his habit of throwing his shoes away at any given moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, um,
2: yeah. Really cool character, and great chemistry with with Will Smith as well.
0: Absolutely. Um, I, I this is not my favorite uh, Tony Scott character, but uh, I don't know why I keep coming back to taking a pill, Monty. 3 I think it's because I saw it again. Uh, on Sky And I wasn't expecting Have you seen the original? I have seen the original The I original a like billion times I mean, It's not a billion times better But it's just uh, It's not um, But James Gandolfini's Merry character uh, Just made me laugh Because he's, he's a weasel Who knows he's a weasel Yeah uh, And I just uh, it, That made me laugh It's not my favourite character by any, by any means But I can't keep saying things From the last Boy Scout You can, I,
1: can. <laughs> I just can
0: not You can I can't any- Yeah, You can Anyway Okay Joe <laughs> Hallenbach <laughs> Joe <laughs> Hallenbach's my favourite uh, Tony Scott character So there we go That was the great Tony Scott Who died this week He will be missed We've got a whole ton of interviews In this week's packed podcast Let's start with a British director Who flits between documentaries And fiction features With the likes of The Red Riding 1980 Man on Wire And now this week's IRA-themed thriller Shadow Dancer All on his CV He is of course James Marsh And he was in Talking to Helen And Phil
1: OK, well, with us today is uh, James Marsh, director, most recently, of uh, Shadow Dancer. Also, of course, Project Nim, uh, Man on Wire, uh, The King and all the rest. So welcome to the Empire Indeed, Podcast. Indeed, nice to be here. Um, so uh, tell us about uh, Shadow Dancer, first of all. I mean, uh, you know, as a Northern Irish person, I'm always interested to see us uh, on screen. What, what was it that caught your attention about the story?
4: Well, it, it really was the premise. I, I can't say that I had a very active interest in the conflict, but the actual premise of the story was possible in these very unusual circumstances in Northern Ireland. So the premise of the story is very simple, that uh, a young mother is caught in London on a terrorist operation and is then given this impossible bargain. Either she goes back to Belfast to basically spy on her own family, or she is locked up for the next 25 years and won't ever see her son again. So from that sort of starting point, the film unfolds as a, a kind of conspiracy thriller where there's sort of layers of deception that the narrative stumbles into and we stumble into and the characters stumble into Uh, and you don't quite know what the bigger story is until really quite close to the end of the film so it's one of those conspiracy films where the audience is sort of the same level of understanding as the characters
1: how did you change the stories uh, from where you got it in, t- in terms of to where the shooting script ended up? Because I believe there were some changes, weren't there, from from the, the script where you first
4: Well, indeed there it. were. There was a novel that Tom Bradby had written um, quite some time ago now. Tom Bradby was the Northern Irish correspondent for ITN in the early 90s, and so he was on the ground and reporting the conflict at the time. Um, and the story emerged from that, of course, um, and it was just that around the time the peace process was starting to kind of jump start into life Um, so he wrote a a novel um, and then a screenplay and the screenplay had quite a lot of quite elaborate set pieces and and expensive um, elements to it and and it felt to me that within that screenplay was a a much tighter leaner film which was focusing only on Colette and her predicament and so the film then uh, as as made and as rewritten by Tom and myself I, I guess a bit whilst we were in production um, becomes a, only from Colette's point of view, so that's a very classic thriller premise where you're seeing most things from one character's point of view, and you're not seeing what she doesn't see. Uh, and that felt to me to be a sort of more producible film, but also a better film mm-hmm. um, as well because it was it became more original actually that way when it becomes just a, a you know a, a, a spy
2: thriller set in a, ha- a house basically. It's funny uh, the film is set in the. Initially in the early seventies, you know, very much the height it's of the a troubles. Yeah. yeah, in the prologue, and then and then skips forward twenty years to as the sort of the peace process starting to take shape now of course you've got the Queen shaking hands with Martin McGuinness which I can guess is pretty timely well it is Is
4: on the front page of our newspapers this morning every newspaper has that image Uh, and it's extraordinary one you know having spent some time now in Belfast and indeed in in Dublin um, when the Queen was there last year we were filming uh, the the Shadow Dancer in Dublin when the Queen turned up for the first time in in the Republic of Ireland so these things make a difference that they're symbols of course but at the same time uh, you know if someone told you that would happen you You'd laugh at the time that our film was being made. And in a sense, the end game of our film is where where we are now. And what you see in our film is the cynical means by which some of this was achieved. And um, that was very interesting to me just from a historical point of view, that that the peace process wasn't an area of the troubles that had been exploited dramatically as much mm. as it could have been and it's a very interesting you know it's, a, it's when everything is changing uh, the stakes are changing uh, the objectives are changing too and in that sort of flux you find people like colette who are in a sense victims of the peace process as well as
2: agents of them yeah we've seen some you know tough scouring sort of politically focused films like um sunday buddy sunday um, sorry, Bloody Sunday, rather. Paul Greengrass film and and Fifty Dead Men Walking recently as well. I think now's a really good time to be looking and sort of introducing new stories from that from that time period that are perhaps maybe less politically focused. Or pe- do you think people are looking for more of a political bent? I don't know
4: what people are looking for. If I did, I would know, I'd, I'd be doing <laughs> something else. Um, but but at the same time, you know, that conflict had so many unusual and uh, and dramatically interesting propositions. If I can regard it as a dramatist as opposed to a politician and that's how I did the film Um, the film isn't really concerned with the bigger political uh, picture in Northern Ireland Um, it's really concerned with these individuals in this situation and the focus is very much on the dynamics of a family and the relationship that Clive Owen's character Mac has with Colette so in a sense though I did you know, my, my research and my homework on the conflict, um, it's really about people in this extraordinary situation and what, what it would be like to have to spy on your own. Flesh and blood, yeah. um, which this you know conflict offers, those kinds of really fucked up traumatic <laughs> situations, um, yeah. and you know I think and it, it's there on our doorstep as well, and we all lived through that conflict, and I think we all found it kind of exhausting. Um, but now perhaps when the peace process feels like it it has roots and it has uh, a future. Um, perhaps one can look at it without uh, trying to make everyone a symbol of a, a, a point of view. Yeah. And, and that's really, the, I think, perhaps the, the the inhibition in some of those Northern Irish stories is that you, you kind of feel like you have to tell the whole story of Northern Ireland in 90 minutes. You can't do that. Um, and you can't be true to the endlessly complicated situation. There are good people on all sides of this conflict and bad people, too. And so what we've done is just focus on... You know this this really interesting human drama, uh, which unfolds as a as we hope and, and and think is a a pretty surprising
2: and gripping thriller. We had uh, Mike Newell talking to us a few months ago, talking about working on Donnie Brasco, a great film, by the way, which is a great film. And he said um, that underrated. Yeah, absolutely. And he was talking about working with some of the some of the shadier figures, I guess. You know, who'd who'd experience these things firsthand, and and how he'd. Met with them after filming, and they had one meeting. He got a phone call. They he basically owed them a favor, and he gave them his favor. He said, "You know, we need. I needed. I knew I needed to, to make good on that, and then that would be well, it. Yeah, that was his firstborn child." <laughs> I didn't specify, <laughs> but it's possible. Um, I just wondered. I mean, not a similar sort of scenario for you, but I guess you must. You, you know, you must be in in and around people that were involved in in, in these kind of activities. And well, these we were, and and um, you know, conversations
4: were discreetly had with with people um, who knew what we were trying to do and what the world is that we, we were moving in. Um, but that said, it is a work of fiction. Um, Tom's reporting is obviously informed, Tom's writing is informed by his reporting mm. and his experiences there, but actually is a work of fiction. Um, and we showed the, b- the film at the Belfast Film Festival just a few weeks back, and there were you know, quite a few people in there who had a, a sort of in, a vested interest, shall we say, in the conflict, um, and <laughs> and, and was was very humbling actually to have one of those people stand up and said, well, that's kind of what it was like. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, can you just tell us a little bit about how those discreet conversations sort of come to pass? Well, I can't actually. Uh, <laughs> you can kill us off because the, they wouldn't be discreet conversations
4: anymore, would they? Uh... Um, so no, it w- wouldn't be proper to talk about that. Uh, I'm not trying to be uh, be a tease, but it, it just you know. Know, the sure. people involved wouldn't wouldn't want us to to be more specific than than yeah, sure.
1: And uh, were, were any of them nervous about the accent because it's a, it's a notoriously difficult one for actors.
4: Well, you to tell me out. over there, <laughs> with your, uh, Did we get away with it?
1: I actually thought they were pretty good. Yeah, I was because uh, it is it is really hard. It's really get. hard. Well, um, that's right? I, the, the southern actors, Donal and Aidan. There were a couple of tiny moments where well, you I you a, they you were a, word a little with with them bit, bit about that Then
4: I'm not going to. But
1: honestly, it, that, that's me nitpicking. <laughs> oh, I think films. I think
4: um, the southern. Uh, obviously they have a, a, a proximity to it yeah. that allows them I think to, to go there I'm mean, still it pretty hard for them to do um, we did have Martin around and Breeje around to keep us honest we had a, a dialect coach as well for Andrea who I think again I'm not the expert and you're much better positioned <laughs> than me to uh, but I think she she really convinced the people around her mm. and she would wander around Belfast with this accent and, and, and use it there and certainly I think that the we had crew members from the North, too, and, and she seemed to pass that test very well. But it's a really hard accent to, to do every day, every word, you know. Um, and she's, Andrea's a very good technical actress, but that's not the point of Andrea. Andrea's a brilliant, um, emotionally connected actress to her characters. So the technique is something that, you know, not all actors have that kind of sense of technique, but she does. But she brings to so much more to what she does than just technique. Yeah. Mm.
0: Stay tuned for an upcoming interview with another cracking British documentary director, Mr. Bart Layton, and indeed reviews of both Shadow Dancer and The Imposter. But first, it's time to belatedly throw open our doors to your questions and queries, all from Twitter this week. Uh, On Twitter, at MadHatter351 kicks off with a doozy. Is there any film you refuse to watch and still haven't? Mine's Slumdog Millionaire. It's a bit harsh, isn't it? Hmm seems a bit harsh won lots of Oscars people love it yeah very harsh yeah you should watch it it's really good yes Mad Hatter 351 watch it
1: well is there anything Um, I'll be honest I've gone out of my way not to see the Saw movies I saw half of the the first one on TV and actually actually I thought some of that was okay but um, I'm not a massive fan of that kind of torture porn so I've been avoiding it
0: that's fair enough they're decent films, actually.
1: I, I I hear so, and I believe you and Kim and other people who have who have described them as such. I'm just not sure I'm you know enough of a non-wuss.
0: No, that's true. They, they are quite brutal
2: uh, film. I guess as a movie critic, you don't really have the luxury of, of no. kind of refusing to watch films as you whoever don't. reviewed Zuki and nor or should testify. you. I would I would argue. No, you kind of have to. But I mean, I'm I sort of feel the same way as Helen. I wouldn't, of a Saturday evening, sit down and want to watch much torture porn. I'm also a bit of a scaredy cat, so kind of Ringu. Uh, Pingu's okay, Ringu I have a problem with. Audition as well. Those sorts of films scare the living bejesus out of me. So, you know, I'd watch them for work, but I don't know if I'd watch them for fun.
0: Okay.
3: I don't know whether I can... I mean, I guess if I could answer this question, honestly, it'd be any of the Paranormal Activity sequels, I'd probably, you know, dodge that bullet. I try
0: not to watch anything with Justin Bieber in it no that's not true um, I don't really I don't know I guess is not like refuse to watch there's uh, stuff
1: you haven't seen
0: there's stuff I haven't seen but it's not the same thing as refusing to watch it
1: I'm it's pretty probably, sure uh, there's some like girly kitty movies you've just but, refused to watch
0: yeah you would think that but at the same time whenever I go home to Northern Ireland and I take my nieces to see a film I mean I saw a Cinderella story I think oh, I've got, got another all, one
2: yeah. we all struggle with human the human sense Pete I, I, I don't think anyone's rushing out to see that uh, Particularly ju- Jumping from the
3: human centipede to something which maybe offends me as much is The Return of Jafar because I can't imagine a uh, Aladdin movie without uh, Robin Williams and that's it, I'm sorry I'm just not going to watch it.
1: <laughs> well, Ali making a principled stand there. He
3: came back for uh, the, the
0: the threequel, so that's fine. Yeah. But you're far now. No. was exactly the same with Team Wolf 2. Exactly. I mean, this guy's not Michael J. Fox. This, this Jason Bateman character will not amount to anything I
2: said. Can we get Mad Hatter
0: 351 to explain why he doesn't want to watch London Mini now? I'm really I think, intrigued. I think Mad Hatter came with a follow-up tweet which said, I don't know why I reviews to oh, watch okay, it. I, I've enough. forgotten why I refuse to watch it. Are we assuming that he has seen Alice in Wonderland? Uh, I, I presume so. Um, or she? Sorry, but um okay. Fair yeah,
2: enough.
0: I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it was. Uh, it, who knows? At the time when it came out, people did say it was quite a hard sit. So maybe, maybe there was that. Hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: maybe. Hmm. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, at Bill Chick asks, uh, just watched Martyrs for the first time. Uh, now that is a film you'd probably refuse to watch. <laughs> um, which film has disturbed you the most?
1: Hmm. Um, This may be down to me Being a wuss again But I went to see Cube When that came out And that somehow Got in my head And really Really messed me up Now Cube I've heard people say since it's not that scary, and on some levels, I can go okay, maybe not. But the thing is, they dice a person in the first five minutes, mm-hmm. and then I was basically incredibly tense for the next eighty-nine. So I, I, I honestly, I thought I was sitting there thinking, oh no, this can't be over yet. There must be more horribleness in store because it's only been about forty minutes, and then it finished, and it had been ninety. So I thought yeah. it was good. I know but what you mean. About I was scared, camp, actually.
2: Yeah it's those sorts of films that kind of they don't have the visceral shock element but they kind of burrow into your mm. subconscious a little bit I was going to say The Vanishing for me I watched for the yes. first time and I just I still I still think about the end of that film the original the original yeah
3: yeah. I've quite a facetious answer to this question which is I watched Ghostbusters far too young not that you know you should be a certain age to watch Ghostbusters but for some reason The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man absolutely freak the freak out of me I could not, <laughs> not stop kidding. thinking I'm not kidding absolutely I used to have recurring nightmares of uh, him and a parrot attacking me uh, and uh, <laughs> for that reason alone um, oh. I can
2: honestly say that Ghostbusters has me the wow. best I
1: think we've That's learned something wow. about Ali I today. watched that
2: film too I watched the opening library scene freak me out but then when he got to Stay Puft I was like I trusted you know, that man I trusted field. him
0: Okay, uh, Gozer I always found quite scary yeah Gozer was scary and the bit where Scorny Weaver's in her armchair and the arm like the the demon arms ripped through her armchair that always that always freaked me out yeah didn't like (sighs) that didn't like did not like that at all
1: we are opening up some big psychological kind yeah, no. worms <laughs> here.
0: Yeah, I do not like that at all. Otherwise, uh, God, I don't know. The last time a movie really, really freaked me out. Uh, weirdly enough, and people are going to write in and say I'm a wuss, um, but then again, I also like to take an well 1, 2, 3, so what do I know, um, was The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Uh, oh, yeah. Which had, which had a um, a thread in it about how uh, Tom Wilkinson's priest says, oh, evil really happens. It, it really walks abroad at 3 a.m. And oh, bad bad shit happens at three a.m. And so that night, when I came home, I didn't sleep. I'm serious. I didn't sleep until about four or five a.m. Yeah. I kept my lights on. Mm-hmm. When I was three a.m. came around. I went, evil is abroad. Oh, no evil way. is abroad. I'll play some football manager. Yeah, that'll that'll do mean, really that'll, that'll ward off evil.
1: I went and did the the junket for that in New York, so I was jet lagged. So I actually woke up at three a.m., no. which is what they keep doing in the film. No, no. it was abroad,
0: why were you worried it would be at your house? Well, I I don't know, in case it was visiting
2: from abroad. Oh, Uh. on holiday. Have you ever stood in front of the mirror and said Candyman three
0: times? I have. What happened? Tony Todd appeared. Oh, shit. Signed some autographs and left. (laughs) Really, really strange. Uh, Okay, so at beggar underscore so asks, is practical always better than CG?
1: Well, would a man in a suit have been better than Gollum? Probably not. Ooh. You know, um... Could you have done Optimus practically probably not. Mm-hmm. You could have left the flames off. That would have been Are you fine, arguing for or against? What I'm saying is... We're discussing. I think it's Big the layers. appropriate tool for the appropriate
3: time. It's Horses for Courses, definitely. This is a essay question for a film studies. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether this uh, beggar underscore so is actually just mining us for... Uh, homework. It, yeah, homework. Please and you've I come resent to the wrong place. beggar. Um, yeah, it's definitely Horses for Courses. I just think that if I watched Jaws, uh, the original Jaws, and there was a CGI shark, <laughs> I would be absolutely <laughs> horrified not for the reason that Steven Spielberg would want. Well, yeah, I love Deep Blue Sea but <laughs> Deep Blue Sea's
0: largely rubbish when the sharks appear <laughs> which is weird.
1: Except for that one time with Samuel L. Jackson. Except for one
0: time but even then it's one of the worst CG sharks in the oh, world. Oh, I it's don't care. It's so funny. Couples of tree has some backwards.
3: really, really dismal CG It's almost sharks as good as, well. as uh, Back to the Future 2's 3D Jaws that it bites uh, the top of um, Marty's head. I mean, that's joyfully bad but... Yeah, DPC is just bad, bad.
0: Yeah, true. I guess, and also as as a as a Bond nut, I prefer my bad Bond skiing slash water skiing special effects to be against a really badly projected backdrop, <laughs> i.e., Roger Moore, Rosalind, horrible, horrible green screen CGI. Uh, Ala Pierce Brosnan in, in Die Another Day. Oh, where
1: he was surfing Jaws the, into yeah, uh, the nandir of the
0: series, the entire film. Um, but I quite like the bit.
1: opening credits of Die Another Day.
0: Mm. The, the fire and ice
1: women kind of holding him up while he gets tortured. Yeah, that's quite cool.
0: I guess, but it also has the worst Bond song of all time playing over it. So you're just going, please get to the end. Please yeah, get to probably, the end. Yeah, it's right. not good. Um, you know, the thing is, when CG came out, a lot of people were worried about how it impact. Um, Practical effects makers, and, and certainly it has affected people like Rob Bottin and Phil Tippett. Obviously, moved into the digital world with Jurassic Park and whatnot. But yeah, you know, I'm delighted to see that shows like The Walking Dead yeah. continue to use the genius Greg Nicotero and, and people like that. And, and, and still, going on, it's still very, very prevalent <laughs> that, that practical effects makers are out there. And
1: still, you know, big filmmakers using both uh, very much. Yeah. Obviously, you know. Christopher Nolan like the truck flip for example something that should never have been CGI and in fact wasn't and that worked brilliantly practically
0: and what these guys can do nowadays Chris Corbold for example uh, he's one of yes. Chris Nolan's uh, trusted uh, guys um, like he did a, a gag on X-Men First Class when I was on set of that the brand singer uh, had it recorded on his phone and showed me this it was like a filing cabinet collapsing that young Magneto was making this these filing cabinets implode and he, th- he said, I thought this would be CGI. When I was on set, it's not. Look at this. It's amazing. He showed me this, like, he filmed the sequence. It's just astonishing what these guys can do. Mm. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. filing cabinet. Yeah, we could do that.
1: John Richardson on Harry Potter is actually quite uh, offended that people think that the snake going around the door of the Chamber of Secrets is CG, and that's in fact all practical.
0: Wow. Yes. That's interesting. It's a
1: very cool effect. Holy
0: cow. So there you go, at beggarso. hope that helps with your dissertation. Uh, at Reservoir Doggy. Good name. Says Arnie's, who's next? Rambo line in Expendables 2 pissed me off, as Stallone is already there. Who should they have referenced? Now, this, of course, there's, Stallone has form in this. So he actually says in Timecode and Cash, Rambo is a pussy. But yeah, that 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 was slightly annoying. Uh, I often I got accused uh, last week by you know, on Lauren Laverne's show of overthinking the Expendables 2. <gasps> Because you know, it's just, you have that whole sequence where Arnie and Bruce are, are quoting each other's films back to each other. And you're just going, well, are they aware in this? Do Arnie and Bruce exist in this world? And have, I loved you in Wall Street. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit like that. I wish The Expendables 2 had had that tone all, all the way through the film, yeah. though. But
1: I, no, I, I wrote a blog about this all uh, this week because it just annoyed me so much. It's basically them writing their own fan fiction. And, you know, it, it gets a little bit much.
3: I would um, say the, the answer to that question, you know, who should he have referenced at that moment and I think it should have been the name of the character from um Stephen Scales Under Siege series. Then would course many people got one. that? I don't know. Well Casey Ryback that's what I mean, is there'll be a little bit more of a you know, an in joke nod. <laughs> Lots of people going to be
0: immediately afterwards. Okay, thanks for all your questions. If you sent in a question and it didn't get read out, don't worry. We didn't think it was rubbish. Uh, we just didn't get round to it. Send it in again next week. We may get round to it, unless, of course, it's rubbish. If you want to get in touch, Twitterify us at at Empire Magazine with the hashtag Empire Podcast. Facebook us, we're Empire Magazine. And send an email, if you still do that thing, to podcast at com. That email address actually is becoming more and more popular. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've had uh, several very tempting offers to extend our penis this week.
1: I'm not even going to uh, comment. I've signed up.
0: (laughs) Anyway, coming up, another Natter with another podcast and the week's movie news. Some call him Count Buckley Others hail him as Dr. Buckles We prefer to call him very simply The brilliant Adam Bucks And the actor slash writer slash raconteur Slash singer songwriter Slash top beardy bloke And televisual and radio host Popped in this week to tell us all about His new Sky Atlantic show Bug And way more besides I was there to grill him relentlessly And joining me for a glass or two of Bucks Fizz (laughs) How (laughs) dare Were Nick and Ali Plum Welcome to the pod booth, one Mr. Adam Buxton, it's a pleasure to have you, sir. Hey, how you doing? Nice to
5: be here. I, I love uh, rooms and microphones, <laughs> so this, for me, it's like a kind of amazing holiday. <laughs> you're surrounded by microphones at the moment, it's amazing. we got four, We've got an extra microphone in just for you. And if there's one thing I love more than rooms and microphones, it's guys. <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's four, counting me, four guys in this microphone room. So this, folks, is one of the best days of my life.
3: <laughs> we may never leave when was the last time you were in a recording studio radio type room of men
5: oh <laughs> man it must have been uh, this morning I was talking to Sean Keevney on Six Music and it was nice to be back nice to be back at Six Music the nation's favourite digital channel playing great alternative music All the time Uh, I miss it there You know I haven't been Me and Joe Did our last Six music show In uh, Summer of 2011 Mm -hmm. And since then That's been it For me in radio And I really miss it
3: has bug been a, a decent enough salve for your pain
5: oh man it's a salve that does all kinds of salve jobs uh it's good for pain it's good for sexual tension uh <laughs> it's good for all kinds of things it can help marriages it can pay for uh clothes <laughs> and i mean it's been a very important salve for all my ills for about er uh, nearly it's s- a long time i mean yeah, five years now. We've been doing the live version at the BFI South Bank for, and continue to do it for uh, five years. We've done it every two months. We have a new show, and then we'll do uh, three shows of that new show, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll do the show three times with slight variations. And now, suddenly, they, you know, everything came together. And um, after years of thinking that it would be a show that would work on TV, but no one would ever <laughs> really um, believe that guy just came along to some of the shows we did in Edinburgh last year or the year before and they suddenly agreed with us and Bongo. Uh, six months later, there we are in high definition with my stupid face <laughs> in
0: disturbingly clear um, vision there for uh, people who have paid Rupert Murdoch for the pleasure. <laughs> for people who haven't seen the show yet on Sky Atlantic or who haven't been to one of the live shows, can you briefly explain the concept behind Bug and where it came from? <laughs>
5: yeah, well, Bug is it's a show that I was invited to present live at the uh, British Film Institute on, on the South Bank um, back in 2005 there used to be a show called antenna that they did at the bfi that i went along to with my friend garth jennings Mm -hmm. who's a uh, he directed son of rambo and uh uh, the hitchhikers film and uh, many wonderful music videos and garth was being interviewed along with spike jones at uh, antenna one time and he said oh come along you know it's really fun and you'll enjoy it it was it totally blew my mind i'd never been to a thing like that showing music videos and i forgot how much i loved that need you know doesn't that stay it's welcome so many different ideas and uh, you know young directors with time and and, and, uh, energy to actually try out all these things for no real reason, just for the love of it, and and maybe as a calling card, you know. So you just get these explosions of creativity in these short films, and I'm you a big muso as well, so it was great hearing all this music that I hadn't heard before, but these weird indie bands and weird little electronic bands and stuff, and seeing these mind-blowing videos that I'd never, you know, that you would not see on TV. Maybe MTV2 in the middle of the night, but even then, probably not. And uh, so seeing them on the big screen, uh, Mm -hmm. one after another, it was, I mean, antenna, they used to really ram them in. So you'd see about 25 videos in one night. It was kind of exhausting. And when they finished uh, doing their wonderful show, a guy called David Knight and Phil Tidy, another guy, and various other folks picked up the baton and uh, invited me to to host and to 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 make it, I suppose, a more silly version of antenna, <laughs> uh, whereas antenna was pretty hardcore and there was a lot of uh, industry professionals would come along. Bug was always supposed to be, I suppose a more Ellie version of that, you know, light entertainment y with my uh, stupid contributions between the videos. you know, still really good videos chosen by David Knight and Phil tidy. Mm. but uh, yeah, i would I would kind of add. A more humorous an element I suppose
6: and I've been down to quite a few of them at the BFI and uh, I think the highlight has to be the, the insane YouTube comments that you managed to dredge up off the internet
5: yeah yeah well that, would be, that sort of became a feature because originally I was pleased to do the job because it didn't take too much preparation on my part I could just turn up and read from the script and say oh, that was the new Michelle Gondry video and, and here's the new Spike Jones and blah 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 I didn't say it exactly like that um <laughs> But uh, after a while, I just felt, you know, I, I would prepare for the shows by watching them on, on the videos on YouTube and sort of note down any things that I thought would be worth saying to the audience about them. And then um, in the course of doing that, suddenly strayed into the comments section. YouTube was still only a few years old at that point. And I don't, th- it never even occurred to me to read the comments. I just thought, why would you? <laughs> why on earth would you care what someone had to say about this Polly Harvey video? Uh, you can make up your own mind, you know. But then I, I just started reading them, and it was really enjoyable just to see these <laughs> sometimes interesting and sometimes wrong-headed. But the thing that, that really made me chuckle and got me engaged was the conversations that started mm. appearing. You know, there was lots of funny one-off comments, but I really like it when people start talking to each other. More often than not, they wind each other up, and then you have the added layer of complication that some people go in there specifically to do that, trolls or flamers or whatever you want to call them, and they will go in there and, you know, they'll post under a Muse video or something and say, Muse are the worst, lamest band in the world! (laughs) And uh, sure enough, you know, most people nowadays, they understand that that's just someone having a dig and they'll say, don't feed the troll. But then there'll be a large proportion of very upset Muse fans who'll say that's not true. Muse are jolly good. You're awful. I hate you. I went to your channel and I can tell that you're worthless and need to be killed. <laughs> uh, they'll they'll maybe chuck in a few um racial epithets as well while they're saying that and uh some swearing. And so you get these, uh, you know, grime videos, not Grimes, the lovely lady synth artist, <laughs> but Grime, like Wiley, mm-hmm. um, people like that. And now Dubstep as well. Although the Dubstep comments tend to be very technical. <laughs> um, but, but Grime, I've noticed, like Wiley, people really sound off and chasing status and things like that. They just get into th- it. It's as if they've been up all night drinking and <laughs> snorting various um types of oven cleaner and then they (laughs) then they get online and they just go nuts at each other (laughs) so i'm always excited when there's a new uh grime based? Is grime even a, a genre that's current anymore? Has it turned into dubstep or what?
3: You're, you're asking movie journalists and we're just going <laughs> to nod and smile. I don't yeah, know. But you're, quite, you're quite
0: hip and with it Ali.
3: Yeah I, 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 up I, I wear sense. skinny jeans sometimes and uh, have really big headphones yeah. I know that uh, Dizzy Rascal is still
5: referred to as the godfather of grime or at least he was at the opening ceremony at <laughs> the Olympics.
3: <laughs> that
0: made it official I yeah.
3: think. I, I should ask uh, this question uh, as a diehard and a Joe fan uh, I've asked yeah. it to you before but I have no James, I'm going to ask you again. Go on. What today are your faves? (laughs) Faves. Besties, worsties, Jedwood.
5: Besties, I would say, macadamia nut, brittle, Harkendars. Something I've not had for a while, but I used to be able to consume a tub in one evening. (laughs) Very, very happily. Um, Worsties, I don't like... There's a guy on uh, Platform 9 at Liverpool Street Station who hates me and as soon as he sees me coming down like he's a guard or whatever and he just wants to do everything he can to disrupt my day and and tell me i can't put my bike on the train or just tell me i'm too late to put my bike on the train that's one that he does now <laughs> oh no no uh, I, the train's not going for three minutes yeah but you need to get your bike on before the uh, you know 27 minutes past it's just literally gone 27 <laughs> minutes past are you joking nah that's the rules mate tough luck you know oh god I, he's he's my worst well everyone has a nemesis you have yeah. found yours he is awful I mean I hate if you're listening I hate you you beardy unpleasant stupid old toilet man uh, he knows he knows who he is I'm gonna get you one day you stupid old git um, so he's the worst Why does he hate you? Because ah, I'm sort of Irritating and smug Looking at <laughs> I don't know
0: <laughs> That was Alan Buxton there And you can see the final Two episodes of Bug On Sky Atlantic On Monday nights Or you can catch up With several episodes On Sky Go uh, Okay so we enter The second day Of this week's podcast It's time to reflect upon The week's movie news Helen What's out there?
1: Well, I thought I'd deal with something a bit weird this week, and that is the, the news that Warners are planning to make a Pontius Pilate film. Um, so this would be written by Women on Top writer Vera Blassie, and it's a biblical epic about Pontius Pilate, who's the guy who you know condemned uh, Jesus to death um, and then washed his hands of it very famously. What a prick! I know, right? So it, it's uh, what what a what a weird subject for a film, I thought. Um, apparently this script is going to bring in, you know, him being appointed, uh, ambitious military guy, appointed governor of Judea by Emperor Tiberius, I think. And when he really wanted the job of Egypt, because everybody did, because Egypt was a lot more cool. Um, and, uh, and it apparently brings in Caligula, John the Baptist, Salome, Mary Magdalene. So it's like the Expendables but for the Bible. It's the Expendables of the Bible. That's,
0: um, okay, you now blasphemer. I'm now I'm solved. <laughs> this is the guy that's based on Bigoth of Dickoth. Of.
1: <laughs> yes, no that's right. Yes, you may have seen him in uh, yeah, in yes. the life of Brian. Yes,
2: strange yes. idea for a film. I it, know.
1: it does seem like a weird one, and I, I'm just I just think it's weird overall that we're suddenly beginning to get Bible. quite a few biblical films. Obviously, Darren Aronofsky is already working on Noah, but Will Smith's you know talking about Cain and Abel as well. There's um, something called Gods and Kings in development, and then we've got the rather different and probably slightly more controversial Paul Verhoeven take on Jesus.
0: Yeah, and uh, Stuart Hazeldean of uh, exam Mm -hmm. fame uh, has written a Moses screenplay.
1: Yeah, there's been a couple of Moses things around. I think Steven Spielberg was looking at one at one point. Spielberg
0: was indeed circling it. I think he may still do it uh, after Mm Ropopocalypse. but uh, we shall see.
1: But yeah, isn't isn't it a strange thing that we're suddenly getting a flood of Bible films? It's like they suddenly... Looked back over the last ten years of film receipts and realised that um, that Mel Gibson's film did rather well. And mm-hmm. hey, maybe they should catch up on that, but they don't seem to have done anything about it in the sort of five or six years since that came out. So
3: maybe it's just that Hollywood rush when somebody starts production on some kind of biblical thing, and people go, "Hey, that's going to be in the zeitgeist! Quick, quick, quick! Let's make loads of movies that are similar
0: to that thought." Possibly. I don't
1: know. I'll, I'll just be—I'll be interested to see which of them actually make it to production and what the heck happens to them if they do.
0: It's an interesting idea for a film. I'm. I, I don't know anything about Pilate. I've completely forgotten everything I learned in RE. Well, I don't think there's much
2: about Pilate in the Bible. I mean, he seems to feature towards the, you know, the crucifixion, and mm. and he. Oh, I was about to say he has one great scene, but I mean, it's the Bible. <laughs> um, he's got. He's got. He's the guy that washes his hands literally yeah. of uh, the decision of what to do with Jesus, mm. and, and then you don't really see too much of him. So origin story I don't know but, you know that's he's a historical figure out- does- so they can find, find, about, find yeah. stuff out about him and, and make it but he's not someone that's particularly I'm not Judas out. would be yeah. more interesting wouldn't it I don't know
0: yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not I'm not begging for a Pontius pilot film, but let's see what happens.
3: Speaking of the Expendables, uh, my new story is somewhat or slightly Expendables related in so much as uh, it's about a possible production starting on an Expendables for ladies. (laughs) And by that I mean women Expendables, female Expendables. Uh, People what are women with guns. The writer involved is Dutch Southern, who is uh, known as a blacklist writer, so that's a positive thumbs up. Uh, It's also being organised by the 1984 Private Defence Contractors Production Company from Adi Shankar, so that's
0: some facts for you. So, who, who are they intending to star in this film?
3: Well, you say intending. I mean, this is all very much conjecture at this point, but you could list, you know, reel off a list of names that might work, like Cynthia uh, Rothrock, yeah, so <laughs> Weaver, uh,
1: Linda see, Hamilton.
3: See,
0: this is where it gets, I think they've got this movie completely wrong. So There's only one '80s action movie heroine, mm-hmm. and that's Cynthia Rothrock.
1: The rest, wait, are, what about, the, the rest uh, are great Linda actresses? Hamilton. Bridget They're, Nielsen?
0: No, the rest. Uh, well, maybe Bridget Nielsen maybe two but, but Red Sonja was rubbish yes it um, was the rest are actresses great actresses who happen to be in action movies that's true it's yeah. not the same thing it, it, so unless it's Cynthia Rothrock and a team of Cynthia Rothrocks <laughs> then it's not going to work the wait young, the Grace young Jones blood.
1: could be the villain Grace Jones ah, So Grace Jones
0: Yeah, okay yeah Grace Jones teaming up with uh, Cynthia okay Grace Jones standing on top of Bridget Nielsen's shoulders to create one giant mega <gasps> even, yes. even flanked on either side mm. by Michelle Rodriguez yeah. and uh, Gina Carano. Yes. Now you're there. Oh, yeah. Now, now it's good. Now we're talking. The wipe <sighs> pendables No way. That doesn't work. Sorry about that.
1: Damn it. Uh,
0: Phil, what have you got?
2: Well, if everybody's kind of recovered from the Raging Bull 2, Fury, um, I've got a oh. video drone to drop on them. Okay. 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 You know, what's the... Yeah. Fire people up again because uh, this remake of uh, David Cronenberg's... Um, Classic eighties postmodern body horror sci-fi. Um, <laughs> it's been underway for a while, and uh, they've now got a director on board. Who is? Um, he is called Adam Berg. You probably won't know him because he's not made any films yet. He's really done. He's done music videos. I know. He's done. Fine. You know him. I don't know okay (laughs) he's done music videos he's done in fairness a virtuoso TV ad called Carousel it's for a company named after me so look it up on YouTube it's spectacular so he's clearly a talented guy but this is a you know people are like do we need this film Uh, David Cronenberg made Existence which is kind of a follow up it's called Videodrome you know, are we going to call the remake Illegal Download Drome? Is it, you know, <laughs> how are we going to update this? And I think our very own Damon Wise spoke to David Cronenberg about it and said, it's been gestating for a while. Is there, what are your thoughts on it? he's like, well, in the internet age, it's completely null and void because how does it work? It's a film about, you know, the pervasive um, impact of television on society. Um, and that's kind of been done. So it'd be interesting to see how they update it. The, the word is that it's going to be a large scale Sci-fi action thriller. Oh, oh, good. Yeah. yeah. So that's not gonna that's exactly. not gonna win any any of the kind of skeptics over. Exactly, it's and Visage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> quite. It's it's yeah. We're kind of thinking, mm, but it's not our job to sit here and and, and poo poo stuff at this early stage. It is written by the guy that wrote Transformers two and three. I'm sorry. More Chris the Miller the haces. I know. On the horizon. <laughs> there's a lot. I can sense it, but. You know, that's what's happening. So we'll wait and see. The guy does seem to have, you know, skills. Uh, Can't wait to see what they do with this film. It's going to make, you know, everyone go and watch Videodrome if you haven't already seen it. It's spectacular.
0: Thanks guys for your news input Uh, Before we move on to the plethora of new releases Bombarding your local multiplexes and art house cinemas It's time to talk to the director of one of those films Like James Marsh He's a signally gifted documentarian Whose movie The Imposter May be one of the year's best It's about a French con artist Who pretends to be an American family's long lost son And amazingly they bought into it Its director Bart Layton Popped in this week to talk to Ali That's you And Phil That's you Or at least we think it was Bart Layton It might not have been could you tell us how you first came about this
3: story and how you decided or when you decided you were able to turn this into a film
6: uh, I, I read about him because uh, he was already known as the chameleon before um, this the series of events which the film depicts happened you know so what he had been doing was traveling throughout Europe you know he was kind of in every city th- in Europe that, that you could imagine what he would do would was effectively kind of call the police, pretending to be someone who had found a destitute child. The police would turn up, they'd find him and put him in through, you know, in a hospital or then in a children's centre and he would spend weeks or months um, kind of living off social services and in children's homes Uh, and did this, you know, well into his 20s. And so I was intrigued enough by that to, to want to find out more and then did a bit of research and found more articles detailing other of his crimes and, and in particular uh this incident in which he had successfully stolen the identity of a kid who'd been missing for uh, three and a half years and were you the first filmmaker that you were aware of that had got in on this story no actually um I think we were the first to, you know, make contact with him and bring him to London to talk about the potential, you know, the possibility of making a film. But I think uh, he was also being pursued by other companies. There was a French movie in production which was starring um, Ellen Barkin and called The Chameleon, which um, I haven't seen all of. It's a very different kind of thing. It's a, you know, fictionalized version of it. Uh, that was happening herzog wanted to make the film so, uh, yeah we had a conversation with him and uh talked about um you know some kind of co-production but I, I, my feeling was that I, I, i'm not sure i wasn't sure there was room for mm. herzog as well in, in the film <laughs> you know and also of course i you know i wanted to, i don't have anything like um, the pedigree of Herzl but I, I certainly felt like it, I knew how to make the film Yeah, and then there was a Texan company who were also sniffing around the story and had actually given him some money to secure his rights and then he'd just disappeared had he signed anything? <laughs> apparently so yeah. really? he signed it and it, he, what he signed came shortly after his the, the um, kind of release form that he signed with us and uh, so they that Company who I've since met, and they're really lovely guys. They then set about trying to make a film about kind of being conned by him. Oh wow! Yeah, it's a clever idea. And you managed to get what I was almost shocked by when I watched the film.
3: First of all, is the uh, sheer access you have to everyone involved. It's not just Down, but you also get the family, the the sister, the mother, the brother. I mean, everybody who's involved. You get the you know everyone. I won't I won't uh, to tell you more characters names would be spoiling, I guess, for the podcast, but how did you manage it? How did you get everyone involved to to tell their own
6: side of the story? Um, It it was a long game, really. Um, A a lot of the credit goes to um, the co-producer who's a young woman called Poppy Dixon who spent months in Texas because at that point the family were not um, Mm. easily found. They were, I think... Um, you know they wanted to put all of this behind them they weren't um, desperate to kind of go back into retelling the story there'd been a few things written in um, different you know the New Yorker magazine had a very long very kind of detailed brilliant um, write-up of it and I think they felt they hadn't come out of that very well Uh, so they were really reluctant at first and I think but I think also slightly torn because I think they wanted to tell their side of the story in their own words Mm. and um, that was not something they they really felt they'd had the chance to do and so Poppy who's this uh, you know very attractive young woman spent uh, weeks frequenting some of the semia bars of San Antonio, and uh, would uh, she tells a story in which she was kind of advised politely that this might not be the best place for her to hang out in, and <laughs> and then and then got put got a lead on um, where she she could find members of the family, and mm. she did, and then eventually we all went and sat down and uh, and kind of one by one they agreed yeah. to take part and you know I think they're glad they did actually. I don't want to sound too mercenary but, but was money involved in any way? Not really I mean there was a bit of I mean you know all of them were working uh, so we you know we kind of reimbursed them for, for the time for the time mm. and expenses and um, uh, one of them was about to have um, a new child so we kind of made a, a donation um mm. But nothing, uh, certainly nothing significant. No one was about to get rich off.
3: Have you shown the movie to the families? And what has the reaction been? Because nobody in this film comes off
6: well. The FBI, the family, the imposter. How has the feedback been? Well, maybe that again goes back to this thing of, you know, how we choose to see what we want to see or Hmm. whatever. But I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, the reactions have been so unbelievably... Polarized, you know. Polarized. You you hear people coming out of the cinema. You know, couples arguing. You know, people mm. go and uh, and loads of people have written to me saying, you know, this is the first movie in ages where they've they've been talking about it days, weeks later. You know, and and arguing and then changing their position out because I think you really, you know, people come away with very different mm. opinions of everyone in it and i think um i you know of course i was quite nervous about showing them the film as as you always are with anyone you know any contributor you've made a documentary with but they all they said was they felt that that they were glad they'd done it in the end they got their story across they said it was honest um and a fair account of what they'd experienced mm. and, and that's actually it- that's gone for everyone that we've shown the film to, everyone who's in it, with the exception of
2: the imposter who who refuses to watch it. Is he not watching it? I saw the um, he posted something on on YouTube asking for a fair hearing and for people to remember that um, you know it was a long time ago ago and it's not out of context. And he seemed to be kind of reviewing it without having seen it a little bit. Uh, He's still not prepared to watch it because he uh you know we offered it we offered to
6: show it to him and uh he was very adamant that uh, he didn't want to and um and then i think he's kind of might be changing his mind but he's you know he's been rather um kind of unpleasant recently um and so i feel like you know we, you know we went a long way towards trying mm-hmm. to you know show it to him and uh, i'm not quite sure why he feels um uh, sort of animosity towards it but um certainly it would be a lot um easier to understand if he'd
2: actually seen it <laughs> yeah you're right one thing you do i mean just want to talk a little bit about the way that you make this film cinematic but also what you do as a filmmaker because i mean without getting into the complex intellectual issues behind truth and subjectivity and stuff. You you do, I mean, it, it, following up from what Ali was saying, you do come out this film and you, you almost feel like you've been dared to judge the characters in it. And I know that that's a very careful process from an editing point of view, from a filmmaking mm. point of view. One of the things you do is, is Frederick Bourdain's interviews are conducted like an Errol Morris in, in Territron to camera, to us in the audience, mm. kind of almost pulling us into his... Constructs and lies. Um, The other interviews aren't. Can you maybe talk about that, and maybe also talk about the use of reconstruction? Because again, it kind of challenges your the audience's Hmm. view on what the heck's going on. Yeah, no, they're really good questions, and I'm I'm
6: kind of glad you you noticed. um the difference in a way. The simple truth was, uh, you know, I would have liked to have had actually everyone. It, it wasn't an uh, interrotron, which is, um, you know, the Errol Morris's uh, invention, where I think he he uses two auto cues, one where he projects his own face and one where uh, he projects the contributor's face on his screen, so there is a kind of eye contact. Um, we constructed something rather more basic than that, but which does the same job, where you basically a uh, constructing a sort of a glass which reflects so you sit at 45 degrees and Mm. enables him to look straight down um the lens and i would have liked to have done that with all of the characters but the practicality of shooting in uh trailers in west texas and you know and the heat of that because you have you need to have the director of photography sort of sit under a black drape and um in order to that There's no reflection of the camera back to the, and he's a good the,
2: cinematographer as well, isn't he? So you don't want to
6: yeah, yeah. He's. <laughs> the, in fact, there were there were three really brilliant cinematographers who worked on different elements of this. So I would have liked to have had the other the other interviewees do that, and it just it's not practical. And you know the whole massive kind of uh, disruption of bringing that. It's a lot of kit to bring into someone's mm-hmm. home. So so that that was a really a practical thing, but also at the same time it was very important for me that he looked down that he looked you in the eye that that so whatever judgment or whatever manipulation that i was on the receiving end of it, as an interviewer mm. would in some ways be deferred to you as a viewer mm. you know so so that that judgment yeah you yeah. know it's
2: kind of passed on wonderful But thank you so much for um, for coming and talking to us and oh, it's uh a pleasure guys um as he says the film is out on friday so go and see it it's excellent terrific
0: Nice guy? Yeah, lovely guy. Good, good, good good film? Great film. More Let's than, star- than start than... there, in fact, because uh, we're, we're about to get into the reviews <laughs> section. Lots of new releases this week because um, people are making up for the fact that you know the Olympics was a bit of a movie vacuum uh, and The Imposter is the best of the bunch. What do we what do we make of it then?
3: I think it's an extraordinary um, piece of cinema. I genuinely think this is one of the best documentaries you're going to see this year. It's telling a very difficult story because everyone involved, the family of this kid, Supposed kid that goes uh, that's in America, the actual you know imposter of the title, as well as the FBI and the other people who are involved in the whole story, are all you know perhaps unbelievable. You know, who do you trust? Where is the truth in any of this story? Mm. And it's played with a very interesting push and pull where you're you know pointed in one direction, oh, we should believe this person, oh no, you should believe this person. And by the end of it, there are so many Mm. twists and turns, it's almost like a thriller except it actually happened
2: yeah it's bizarre we were talking to Bart before we we had the interview and saying you know how difficult it is when people go to the multiplex to persuade them to go and watch a documentary but i think with this one it's it gives you stuff that you don't get in a feature film because the story you know i think we may have touched on it in the interview is so incredibly far-fetched um that you just wouldn't believe it you wouldn't buy it in a feature film here's a guy he's french um, 23 years old posing as a 17 year old Texan who's been through this he, he spins this incredible yarn of, of what's happened to him and without giving too much of the, the plot details away like Ali says there's just you, you're so lost in this kind of web of deceits and, and lies and half-truths and truths that people have persuaded themselves are, are true but aren't or maybe who knows so you kind of sit there and I think what 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 makes this film so good is the but Layton doesn't try and, and and show you the truth. He he's quite clear in the way that he makes the film that it's really up to you. You're kind of like the jury. This is to me. This feels like what it would be like to be on the jury in a particularly challenging, you know, case. You just have to try and navigate your way through it, and it's fascinating stuff.
0: So this is one of those documentaries. Am uh, I right in thinking, like, say, Touching the Void?
2: I was going to compare it more with a film like Andrew Jarecki's *Capturing the Friedmans* or Errol Morris's *The Thin Blue Line*. But what I was getting at was, is it's, it's largely recreated, isn't it? With actors. No, well, I, he was very adamant that he, uh, not to use the word recreation. What what he does is he uses talking head interviews um, and so augments talking, it with what he called not not recreations, but
0: so it's talking head interviews with the people who are actually involved. Yes, every one of them. And then so we that. have what might have been. With actors, what he what he's doing with it, and I guess this is what I meant before
2: is that he is recreating the stories that people are telling. That's right. He's not saying this is what happened. It's not a reconstruction. It's a reimagining, or it's a it's a kind of an extension of their stories. Yeah, it's bringing those stories alive rather than a
3: crime watch. This is what happened. These are the facts we know.
2: Yes, and I think that's really important in this instance, and it it makes it stand out from other documentaries because it really does. Demand from you as, as someone that's watching it to to try and filter out all of this stuff and work out exactly what happens and and he doesn't know and and so you know it's very much a kind of like he'd use the word immersive because it seems like a cliche but it, it did feel like yeah. an immersive documentary and uh, it'll have you talking about it for for ages and
3: if if that's what you value from films and I hope you do that discussion point that mm. you know debate. Then do go and see this film it's not going to be in every cinema um, I think it's fair enough to say but give it a Google see where it is in your in your locality and, and hunt it down
2: five stars we gave it we've given it for, I don't think we've given a documentary five stars for I don't know many movies. probably a couple of
0: weeks it's a good time for documentary <laughs> that's, that's, that's. it is honest. a good year for documentaries yeah.
2: but you know this is one of those rare ones and I mentioned Capturing the Freemans and, and The Thin Blue Line that really stands out as a, as a just an incredible story and um, that's uh, you know will kind of blow you away I think
0: fantastic so five stars if you can do check out Bart Layton's The Imposter next let's talk about the other serious minded movie of the week we've already talked to its director James Marsh so what is Shadow Dancer actually like Helen
1: well it's a Northern Irish uh, uh, drama so obviously uh, you're just throwing it to me on purpose aren't you
0: yes Blatant yeah.
1: discrimination. Um, stereotyping. Yeah, stereotyping all the way. Uh, so this is about a young Northern Irish mother who's played by Andrea Riseborough, who we first see basically getting on the tube in London uh, with a, mister, a suspect package, frankly. Um, and uh, things don't go so th- smoothly for her. She gets a bit freaked out, jumps off the tube at Mile End Station and um, and is picked up by the police and basically told you can either go to prison and never see your, your son again or um, you can turn informer for us. Uh, she agrees to the latter... Um, but things don't go so uh, so smoothly obviously it's a it's a tough thing because she's essentially informing on her own family because her own brothers are part of the IRA as well this is all set by the way in the 1980s it's a Mm -hmm. something of a period piece okie dokie and I should mention Clive Owen is her sort of handler back home so it's kind of um yeah tense twisty turny very good belfast accents i would say from the cast which is not an easy thing to do you've got uh, Aidan Gillen in there donald gleason as well really really terrific cast all around and uh yeah i had some issues with it i'm not quite sure it just mm, i the ending lost me a little bit but i think overall i mean really really well acted and plotted drama
2: mm. i i Probably liked it a little more than Helen and Andrea Riseborough's character is. I mean, she's fantastic. I think she's a really talented actress. She's able to sort of vanish into characters. Um, so convincingly and uh, yeah, it's tense it's it's not full of action set pieces it's got some great stuff in it but it's very much a character study and a, and a, and a tense drama of a real kind of moral quandary and uh, it's very much worth a look I think we've given it four stars yeah. so you know if you're looking for something that's kind of got a Tinker Taylor soldier spy more than an enemy of the state vibe then this is something to look out for
1: yeah I think that's a fair comparison fantastic
0: uh, there's a ton of comedies also out this week uh, well allegedly um <laughs> Already out It opened on Wednesday As the Farley Brothers The Three Stooges Which is their update Of the classic shorts Moe, Larry, Curly Etc etc Featuring eye popping And nose pulling plenty. They started out With a dream cast They had Jim Carrey Benicio del Toro And Sean Penn On board at one point And uh, they ended up With two guys You've never heard of And Sean Hayes From Will and Grace But doesn't necessarily mean That the film is bad What do we think of this one?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, you have to know if you're going to like the th- the Stooges' humour because it is still very much based around, you know, violence to one another, um, haplessness uh, as regards the rest of the world and um, some o- occasional forced punnery, um, hmm. but mostly violence, let's be honest. So if that is not your thing, just avoid it completely. And there's it's, some fun bits in it. I mean, you've yeah. got Jane Lynch in there as Mother Superior. You've got Larry, Larry David. David yeah. you know. Um, so there, there's, there's joy to be had. It's just not quite as... Yeah, sharp or classic as we might like.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, and the, and the three guys. I mean, it was a bit, a bit unfair to uh, Will Sasso, who does his great Arnold Schwarzenegger impression on Mad TV in the States, and the, the other guy is fairly unknown, a guy called Christian Mantopoulos, uh, and they are fantastic as the stooges. I mean, they, they're not doing, they're not actors, you know, doing a uh, this is my take on Larry. They're actually doing, impersonating the, the three guys, uh, and they do it brilliantly. Um, it's not great. We gave it two stars but I think if you have kids who like people being hit in the face with things I think Fick and Bob <laughs> and what love kids this don't. film yeah absolutely I love it so uh, uh, go and check it out uh, another film out this week another big comedy uh, is The Watch uh, which didn't do that well in the States uh, Big big of sci-fi comedy in which Ben Stiller Vince Fawn, Jonah Hill and Richard Ayoade yes Richard Iowati. Yeah, I know uh, form a group to stave off an alien invasion presumably using their amazing powers of improvisation uh, yeah this one
1: yeah, it's, it's it's another one that's not quite as sharp or as classic as I think we'd like it to be. I mean, everyone's playing to their strengths but perhaps a little bit too much so. So, you know, when you've got Ben Stiller as the kind of uptight, nervy guy again, and Vince Vaughn as the guy who, you know... Sleazebag. behind Yeah, behind yeah. a respectable facade, just wants to have fun again. It just it just feels a little bit over-familiar and you kind of want them to push themselves a bit because, quite frankly, that's when they're at their best.
0: Yeah. I was disappointed about this one because it's from Akiva Schaefer who directed Hot Rod. He's one the Lonely Island trio, and Hot Rods, one of my favorite comedies for the last ten years, and I was just hoping for something more. But this this has that that lamentable stink of sadly a lot of mainstream comedies these days, where you get the sense the the, the script was a pamphlet filled with <laughs> and and instead of great <laughs> yeah. dialogue, it just says and now the guy is improvised and something hilarious happens, and it, it just feels like that all the way through. And also the tone of it is it's trying to be Ghostbusters but at the same time it's being really crude and, and quite witless and I, I didn't really like it and if you're going to employ Richard Iowati, I mean I know he's great as Dean Lerner and Garth Marenghi but you get him to play a Moss type character don't you you get him to play a Moss from the IT crowd and they don't they have not him as some sort of sleazy guy who wants to have sex with everything that moves and it doesn't quite work i, I love to see him in more uh, Hollywood things but I don't know mm. you, get the, you get the impression that uh, everyone involved with this one may want to forget it pretty quickly and last but not least this week, there's uh, Keith Lemon, the film. Now, astonishingly, this wasn't shown to us for review, uh, so at the time of recording, we were not able to tell you if it's the uh, the worst film of the year or not. You'll have to uh, catch it to make up your own minds on that one. But given that it's the only film name-checked in Revelation, we'll leave it there. Uh, also out this week in very limited release is the utterly demented comedy Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie the feature debut of Tim Heidegger and Eric Wareheim the madcap geniuses behind Tim and Eric awesome show great job Uh, and that's only playing at the Prince Charles Cinema in London uh, before a VOD and DVD and BD and all sorts of D's release next week Uh, so if you're in London check it out because I believe Tim and Eric are doing Q&As at the Prince Charles uh, tonight Friday they did one On Thursday So you've missed that one Damn it But maybe tonight Who knows You can get tickets And that's it For this week's Jam-packed Empire Podcast Join us next week For more film-related fun Where we'll be talking To Tim and Eric And if all goes well I've already name-checked them Special effects And Walking Dead genius Greg Nicotero Uh, Until then It's goodbye from Helen Toodaloo Goodbye from Phil Goodbye Goodbye from Ali Bye now. And I'm going to leave you with the following thought from Mr. Joe Hallenbeck. Water is wet, the sky is blue and oh, Satan Clause listeners, he's out there and he's getting stronger. What do we do? Be prepared, son. That's my motto. Be prepared. See you next week.